The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Cindy Yu. Every week we take a look at some of the stories from the new issue and invite their writers and guest experts to join us in explaining and debating them. This week, are we witnessing the unfolding of the TikTok intifada? Why are cryptocurrencies enthralled to online humour? And has the venerable Turner Prize for Art been turned into a platform for politically correct activists? First up this week, the violence in the Middle East has been fanned on the ground by the widespread use of platforms such as WhatsApp and TikTok. Videos of atrocities and violence are everywhere, spreading propaganda and misinformation on both sides. In this week's cover story, the journalist James Ball asks how and why this is happening. James, you you write about this TikTokization of global politics. Just paint a picture for us. What's happening? So it's starting to look at how this kind of most youthful, most energetic, most grabby of the social networks is starting to sort of move beyond the kind of areas where it would kind of be mocked as teens dancing or, you know, makeup tutorials. Not that there's anything wrong with either of those things, but actually it's starting to clearly touch on the most serious of issues. And we can obviously see that in TikTok's kind of response to the escalation of conflict in Israel-Palestine, which is, you know, now run for more than 10 days. It's worst in a decade. And lots of people who aren't intrinsically political are encountering really visceral videos and explanations of the conflict from TikTok. Now, it's that kind of passive news thing that can be the most interesting but the most sort of potentially inflammatory people who actively seek out a newspaper article or something like that are often going to have quite a lot of the context in the backdrop it doesn't mean that they will automatically side one way or the other but they will understand that there's a lot of nuance to the the history and the the sort of the traumas that created israel there's a lot of history to Palestinian politics and what Hamas's game is versus Fatah versus other factions. You don't really get that from TikTok. (laughs) That would not make a good viral video. And so what it does is it firstly increases the immediacy. It keeps people in the moment. It keeps people polarised. But it also makes it harder for people to back down. There's an extra factor to it in that among many, many sort of factors that contributed to the escalation of the conflict the tensions were sort of racked up by what appeared to be I think quite a niche TikTok challenge sort of a little bit like the ice bucket challenge a few years ago that I think ended up raising about 200 million dollars for mice neuron disease this was a much much nastier challenge it was to film yourself assaulting an, an orthodox Jew and they didn't, I don't think there were many of the videos, but that there were any is clearly too much. And one went viral through being reported in the mainstream Israeli press. 
it led to a retaliatory sort of march and escalations from an extreme right-wing Jewish group. And that sort of threw fuel on what was already a very smouldering fire. And so we're seeing sort of the ways that the polarisation of social media can start to interfere with some of the world's deepest, longest running tensions. This isn't a unique TikTok problem, we should say. This is a problem of every social media algorithm. YouTube, quite famously, could radicalise people quite quickly down, you know, what were called YouTube rabbit holes, where quite quickly, if you just kept watching the recommended videos, they would get more and more extreme. Speaking of social media more generally, you write about the Arab Spring in your cover piece, and you, you mentioned really interestingly that your optimism for the liberalising effect of social media. Can you talk a little bit about what you thought would happen and why you think that it hasn't happened? Well, I mean, we overstated the role of Twitter and Facebook in the Arab Spring, but they were really a factor. It meant the world could watch, you know, people in Tahrir Square, in in the various other countries, in Tunisia, were getting the message out there directly and showing people the size of the crowds in the country and beyond it. You could see that it was helping mobilise international support. You know, even things like hacking groups helped people keep the internet on or get get the message out when there was sort of official censorship. It was quite inspiring. And it did remind us that social media and the internet bring us closer together. I think the two things that we sort of forgot in that is that once you know that something can be a centralising force and a radicalising force and can get people to the streets, everyone can use that. It doesn't only have to be used for progressive causes. And, you know, one of the best people in the world at using social media to inflame a fan base and to get people out in the street was Donald Trump. So, you know, he didn't sort of think through that corollary. But the other one was, you know, quite often if you bring people closer together, it doesn't mean they get on brilliantly you know, think about when people go home to see the family for Christmas. It might be lovely uh, all being under one roof for a day or two, but if if you stay more than three or four days, someone's going to have an almighty row. And uh, I think social media is the equivalent of us all being cooped up, perhaps a little too close, more closely together than we should be. James Bull, thanks very much. And we're now joined by Dr. Gabriel Wyman, Professor of Communications at the University of Haifa in Israel, who's been looking into hate speech on TikTok. Gabriel, welcome to the podcast. What drew you to TikTok as a subject of academic research and what have you found on it? Well, we started three years ago to study the use of social media in terms of hate speech and the abuse of social media by hate speech. And we were looking in all kinds of social media and all kinds of hate speech and incitement to violence uh, coming from uh, white supremacy, anti-gay, anti-woman, anti-Semite, anti-Muslim, anti-black, all kinds, neo-Nazis and so on. And we were focusing on the conventional medium platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter. However, one of my teaching assistants and research assistants, who is, by the way, from London and is in London now, uh, informed me by an urgent mail, and she said, did you see TikTok? And I said, what do you mean TikTok? I know TikTok. My grandchildren are playing with TikTok. This is, you know, the video of singing, lip singing. She said, you should know it. You should see it. And uh, she started um, sending me 
links to videos on TikTok. And this is what caused us to focus on TikTok. And we published two years ago the first research, the first study, the virus of hate, and then spreading hate on TikTok. And this is what got us focused on TikTok, and we are still doing it. So on TikTok, you, you mentioned in your just now that there's a wide range of hate that is spewed all the time on all sorts of social media platforms. What is particular about TikTok? Is there anything particular about TikTok? I would say that I'm more worried about TikTok than any other social media. And I will explain why. There are actually, it's a merge of, of several factors. First of all, it's a, it's a very popular platform. And right now, it's the fastest growing platform. I mean, they are ahead of Facebook and, and Twitter and others in terms of downloads. They had an audience downloaded 1.2 billion times. Active users over half a million, almost 600 million users worldwide. So popularity reaches the first reason. The second one is the type of audience. This is a, a medium, a platform that targets young audiences, very young audiences. I would say 6 to 16 is the most of the users are there. That means that we are facing a very young and gullible and naive and uh, I would say unsuspecting kind of audience. The third factor is that this medium is almost not regulated. I mean, TikTok is a, owned by a Chinese company, which is not that sensitive to public pressures in the West, is more profit-oriented, and I guess they are even very young in this area. So the, the terms of use that they actually post in the website, which inhibits any use of hate, any use of violence, any promotion of terrorism, and so on, fake news, of course, they are certainly not applying their own terms of use. So the three combined, and if you add to it additional factor, and which, which is a new one, and that's the algorithm. TikTok is using a very efficient algorithm, and I'll explain it. Uh, once they know you and they see what you are looking for, they will flood you with those contents. So they learn about you, like other companies. But uh, that goes also, the algorithm is stupid enough to flood you with negative and hate messages. So in our study, when first steps, we were looking for, let's say, anti-Semitic messages or white supremacy messages on TikTok, all of a sudden, the algorithm defined us as interested in the topic, and we are not, we are flooded with material. We don't have to look for it. They do the research for us. So every day we get new updates with new videos. So the algorithm is an additional factor that makes the, the abuse of the TikTok so dangerous. That's fascinating. When we talk about the algorithm, um, you mentioned it's Chinese owners, and that's the company ByteDance. Now, for people who don't are not in the generation to use TikTok, TikTok might have been flagged up by President Trump's warning about this incredibly popular social media app having Chinese ownership. Do you think that there is a geopolitical dimension to this, that the Chinese government may be seeking to uh, you know, either monitor or actively influence activity on the social media platform? Uh, first, based on my experience, TikTok is not doing a good job, even if they are willing to. And I'm saying it because a year ago I was interviewed, exactly a year ago, when my first report on anti-Semitism on TikTok came out. A year ago I was interviewed on BBC. Facing me, I mean, on, on the broadcast was a representative of TikTok. And he said that that was a year ago. And he said, uh, don't worry, we are moving everything we are removing everything, we are blocking everything, we are erasing everything, we won't let it happen. So a year later, that is just now, 
we did another study. We came back to the same platform, applying the same coding system, looking at the same amount of time, three months actually, and uh, we found an increase of over 1,000% in anti-Semitic contents on TikTok. So that means that either they don't know or they don't want to, or they are not successful in doing it. I don't know what, what's going on there. Are they really doing the best to do it? Are they um, unsuccessful? Or they are not really trying very hard to do that. But uh, the pressure that Facebook and Twitter and other Western companies are facing from government uh, officials, from the public, from the media, well, TikTok is not challenged in the same way and not pressured by the same pressures. Gabriel Wyman, thanks so much. Now, if you've ever risked a bet on Bitcoin, you might be feeling a tad concerned this week as news broke of the Chinese government cracking down on cryptocurrencies, leading the markets to crash. In this week's magazine, Jack Rivlin writes about the rough-and-tumble world of cryptocurrencies and especially about how silly internet memes can lead to multi-million dollar wins and losses for investors around the world. We're joined now by The Spectator's deputy editor, Freddie Gray, and Jemima Kelly from the Financial Times Alphaville column and an avid follower of all things Bitcoin. Freddie, to start with, maybe you can just explain to listeners what is Dogecoin? Uh, God, you've thrown me. <laughs> Dogecoin is a sort of cosmic joke on the universe, I think. It was created as a joke. It's not meant to be real. Everybody knows it's not real. Most respectable platforms won't let you buy or sell it because it's a joke. And yet, because we are living in an insane financial time, it has had billions poured into it, and it has it briefly became quite valuable. Um, it's since crashed in recent days. But yes, Dogecoin is a cosmic joke that sort of neatly reflects the insanity of our time. Yeah, and, and, and a symbol for it is this fat dog, which oh, yes. is an internet meme. Yes, um, and, and, it, and it has proliferated now, so there are now a large number of other coins. They are called, I'm sorry to use the word, but you have to swear when talking about cryptocurrency. Uh, they're called shit coins, yeah. and there are various others. There's one called Safe Moon, which perhaps Jemima can tell us a bit more about. Dave Portnoy, the internet celebrity plug this week, and there are various other ones, and they're all jokes, but some of them fly, some of them don't. Jemima, this must make your job as a financial journalist quite different to what it was before, because now you're having to dig into the corners of the internet and understand, you know, what's pretty obscure memes uh, that, that are just taking hold for irony. Well, to be honest, I've been kind of for almost all the time that I have worked in financial journalism, I have covered crypto and the whole space is just a bit of a joke. God, I've just used the word space, which is the the word that they use to describe their kind of industry, which I actually hate. But there's, it's not really an industry either. So space kind of is the only um, suitable word. I mean, my view is that, like Freddie, you said that, you know, Dogecoin isn't real. I mean, is any of it real? The place that we've now come to is like, is money real, right? That's the like classic crypto response to that, which is not the argument I'm going to start making. But like, if we talk about Bitcoin, there's not really any difference between, I mean, there are some kind of technical differences, but really there's not really a difference between Bitcoin and Dogecoin, apart from the fact that one says it's a joke and the other one says it's really serious. <laughs> and so like, you've got this really slightly embarrassing situation now where you have all these like really quite serious Bitcoin bros who really want to be taken seriously because that's like a great way of like bringing everyone into their headless Ponzi scheme. Getting quite upset about the fact that Dogecoin has been performing quite well because it's like, but hang on, like this is, that, that one is a joke. It's pretty hard for them to kind of 
rationalize the fact that there's actually value to that, especially given that there's no kind of hard supply cap on Dogecoin. Whereas with Bitcoin, there's this cap of 21 million that it will reach eventually sometime in the next century, which supposedly gives it this kind of digital gold scarcity value. There's a guy at Bloomberg called Joe Wosenthal, who I yeah. quite like, and his, his line is, is a good one, I think, which he said he likes Dogecoin because he thinks it's more honest than Bitcoin. Yeah. Because everybody knows it's not real, rather than let's all, all pretending and talking about ledger systems and blockchain and so on and stuff we don't really understand. It's a more sort of honest con. You really can't buy very much at all with Bitcoin. Like, there's a massive kind of you know archetypal Bitcoin bro who actually really, really, really hates being called a Bitcoin bro because he finds it offensive, which makes it kind of funnier. Guy called Anthony Pomp Pompliano, who has just launched a company called Bitcoin Pizza. So you kind of watch the video and you're like, oh, cool. Like, you know, obviously they're going to accept Bitcoin and they don't even accept Bitcoin. Bitcoin pizza doesn't accept Bitcoin. I thought I was being trolled. You only can pay with dollars for this Bitcoin pizza. The only thing that makes it Bitcoin is that apparently uh, (laughs) some of the some of the profits are going to go to Bitcoin developers. So like rather than giving the money to like the local pizzerias, you're putting it into the pockets of um, Bitcoin developers, which is which is funny. But so I don't think that Doge, I mean, Doge might not be. So, so, for example, Tesla says that it's going to accept, you know, Bitcoin for car payments, but then, or it has done, but, you know, it also says that it's going to accept Doge for, like, mission to the moon. So I don't think the difference between them is that one can be used as a payment, is the point that I'm making, because actually, even the Bitcoin bros themselves don't really think of Bitcoin as a means of payment. It's a way of speculating, it's a way of making money, but I think even the people who are in Bitcoin itself, like, don't, are kind of no longer pretending that this is, like, a means of payment. Do you think it's 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 kind of nihilism, right? Maybe the end of civilization stuff. <laughs> well, in some ways, I think it's kind of you know this is something I've said lots of times before, but it's but it's a kind of religion, isn't it? Like all of this, and I think it's kind of interesting that we've seen this like very rapid decline in religion over the past few decades, and and I think in a time of like uncertainty, like a global pandemic, I don't think it's that surprising that like people want to turn somewhere and. Crypto markets, yes, they've been like really funny, but they also have this quite like pseudo like religious aspect and they've got kind of evangelists and leaders, you know, like Elon Musk. There's, it's not just that they're fun and that you can make money. There's a kind of like, you know, we saw this with the GameStop saga as well. There was this idea about like taking on Wall Street and like people are getting a, a slight kind of feeling of meaning and purpose from these from these cryptocurrencies. I mean, Dogecoin is a joke, but it's still kind of the idea that money is a meme and Dogecoin is a meme. And so it's just as valid as money. I don't know. I feel like there's a kind of deeper. It, it's a sort of revolution that you can do. I think Jack Rivlin, in, in another piece he wrote for us, the author of this piece, uh, he said it's a revolution that you can do without without putting your yeah. trousers on. You know, it's a kind of it's a very easy. It's easy to have the thrill of feeling you're doing something that is taking on the establishment by pressing a few buttons and hopefully getting a bit richer in the process. Well, Freddie, how much of this is because now your everyday person can invest through apps, through all sorts of things? Yes. And so it's sort of Jack, what Jack calls the democratisation of investment, which means that, you know, all these people going on the internet and <laughs> looking at memes can now put their money where their mouth is. Yes, yes. And I shouldn't sound too sanctimonious because I'm, I'm doing it too, right? I've been buying and selling. I heard. I heard about your GameStop. Investment. Uh, and and uh, how much money have you made or lost? I have made <laughs> I've made money. I've made some money. I got lucky. Great. I sold out Great. of Ethereum just before the crash. Uh, but I mean, I just was doing it as a as a bit of fun, and then it started to make money, and then I started to convince myself I was a very shrewd investor, and I bought into the cult that Jemima is yeah. is talking about. 
Yeah, you've got diamond hands, as they is would that, say. Is that, was that a thing? Yeah, yeah. Right. That's why Elon Musk that. this week tweeted out an emoji of a diamond with an emoji of hands. And oh. that actually did move the market for cryptocurrencies. Jemima, do you think we're in a crazy world of volatility right now that, that one word from the grand leader, Elon Musk, can raise or fall Bitcoin? Or was it ever this irrational? I mean, it's always been incredibly like, you know, the bigger question is like how rational just general markets are. But like crypto in particular is certainly maybe it is rational. I don't know. Like we don't want to get into an argument about what that means. But like maybe it is rational to buy Bitcoin if like Elon tweets about it because it's going to go up, isn't it? If you're just after like making a quick buck, then that, that kind of makes sense. I would push back a little bit on the idea that this is like a democratization. I think that's the lie. And that's the kind of religious bit of it. But that's like the, the big lie of it as well, because like actually Dogecoin, which, as you say, you know, has been described as like the most honest shitcoin, is actually even more unevenly distributed than Bitcoin. And one of the big arguments, so basically Bitcoin, I regard as like a massive, as I say, kind of headless Ponzi scheme in which, you know, the people who've got in at the beginning are constantly incentivized to like find new ridiculous arguments for like getting other people in, because obviously that's going to make them money. And so the concentration of wealth is like very much skewed towards the people who got in at the beginning. But Dogecoin is even more so than Bitcoin. So it kind of has this reputation of being the most honest shitcoin. But it's even less fair in the sense that like the, the masses are only kind of accessing like 1% and like the other 99% is held by like a really small number of wallets. So this is the kind of the lie, I think, this kind of democratization of, of investing. I wouldn't even call it investing because it's just speculating or gambling. I think one of the reasons as well that it's so attractive is, you know, as you say, it's very accessible. And I think there's a difference between democratizing something and something being accessible. It's also like a global phenomenon. So it's quite fun. I mean, I, def I think the entertainment value of all of this shouldn't be like underestimated, obviously. But it's quite fun that you can kind of you know, wherever you are in the world, you can be part of this kind of movement, if you want to call it that. And also in places where gambling is actually quite restricted, it's much easier. So even in the US, where there's like quite heavy regulations on gambling, and it's much easier to get into crypto, and it's just more fun. And I think it's quite interesting as well, because even if you know that you might lose money, that doesn't like that is a risk that you're willing to take. And I think it's kind of interesting, again, in like the context of this pandemic, where we're really having to think about like, how we regard risk and how we're going to start becoming a bit more tolerant of some risks or are we going to live in a kind of very risk averse world it's quite funny that I think this is quite an interesting demonstration of the way in which you know emotions play into like risk calculations and people are willing to take a risk with crypto because it's fun and that's kind of like one of the ways in which we evaluate risk I think it's kind of interesting. Finally Freddie do you have any investment advice for people looking to get into crypto? Uh, probably the sensible thing we say don't but I like what Dave Portnoy said this week, which is, if this is a Ponzi scheme, you want to get in on the ground floor. I mean, that, he's just being real, isn't he? That is, yeah. that is the, the truth right there. Thanks, Jemima and Freddie. And finally this week, it seems as if the nation's art world has been going through some pretty major changes during lockdown. The annual Turner Prize, the UK's most prestigious art accolade, has sparked controversy this year, as instead of individual artists, it selected obscure collectives whose works seem to more closely resemble activism than what we might recognise as art. Writing about this peculiar state of affairs in a magazine this week is art critic Oliver Bassiano, and he joins us now, together with the art journalist Hetty Judah. Oliver, you were a judge for the Turner Prize only a few years ago, but this week you write in the heckler column in the art section about it. Why are you heckling the Turner? 
In part because it was a mere culpa, I suppose, because I put forensic architecture in my shortlist. There was a lot of talk then because they sort of deny being artists. And, you know, their work is uh, based on architecture and activism, but it has a very strong aesthetic sensibility. Now, this year, there's five shortlisted names. All of them are collectives, and all of them, I think, have a much more sort of socially engaged edge to the point where they might not even actually be artists at all. To my mind, that's sort of um, a shame, uh, and it sort of points to a sort of lack of confidence, I suppose, in art making in a time of crisis by the jury. What sort of stuff do they do? Who are these candidates? So Array Collective sort of organised performances, protests and exhibitions and events, but specifically in response to issues affecting Northern Ireland. Gentle Radical create the real and virtual spaces, I'm quoting here, communities in Wales. Project Artwork are a fantastic organisation. You know, they, they provide studios for artists of learning disabilities. Uh, cooking sections, they are a pair of architects who sort of address climate change in their work. They're the one uh, name that's sort of exhibited internationally and in museums. And then uh, Black Obsidian Sound System on club nights, specifically sort of like targeting to a black trans audience and queer audiences. All those organisations, you know, their work sounds great, but they're sort of organisations. They're sort of like spaces or projects. They don't seem to be artists. They facilitate art. I mean, I think one really important point to make, and Ollie, I really enjoyed your column, and you made some really great points, I should say, that I did very much agree with, and I think your point making distinction about the kind of choice of the list not being Tate's role uh, was really important to make because a lot of people make that mistake. And also, you know, you did point out how tribal the art world is, which I think is also you know, an important point to raise. But it's an atypical year. So, I mean, you talk about people going on making kind of weird and exciting stuff in their bedrooms or their studios, but we've not been able to see much of it this year. So, I mean, you know, are we going to have an exhibition of, you know, the most liked artworks on Instagram for this year's Turner Prize selection? You know, it's been really hard for people to get out and see shows, partly because there have been travel bans in place and partly because there haven't been that many shows to see. So I think this does seem like an interesting response to a very atypical year. Are they being upfront about it? Are they being upfront that this is what they're doing? Or is it, do you think that this is just the start of what's to come in future years as well, Hetty? I mean, there's certainly been a real interest recently in collectives. So Array showed in 2019 in an exhibition at Jerwood in London, which was specifically looking at collectives in art. And there's been lots of conversations in recent years about this whole thing about, you know, the great white genius single male artist and how we need to start thinking about different ways of art making and different ways of exploring the fact that ideas perhaps come out of a social group or a couple or, you know, or indeed a collective. And there have been exhibitions about Grand Fury, which was a group that was working with ACT UP in New York. So they were shown at Auto Italia in London. Um, there have also been exhibitions about group material. I mean, so there, there is definitely a precedent for this interest in collectives. And I would say that this probably reflects a wider art world interest in the work of collectives at the moment. And there have also been lots of conversations about what kinds of art we value at the moment. Is it just going to be, you know paintings and conceptual works and things that kind of fit into a a tradition of modernism and the avant-garde or are we going to start valuing other forms of making are we going to you know start looking at kind of 
you know, different forms of performance, different forms of making, different forms of collective action. So I think this does fit into larger conversations that are going on in the art world at the moment. There's certainly, I certainly see this as a necessity out of the pandemic. But at the same time, the jury is supposed to be able to judge. They put these into a competition, these organisations into a competition, and they couldn't have judged whether Black Obsidian Sound System can't have put on a club night in the last 18 months. The jurors can't have gone and seen the work, the projects that these uh, organisations have put on. So I, I think the sort of argument that, oh, because it's the pandemic here, doesn't apply. Now, last year, they sort of cancelled the prize and they gave out the money as grants, uh, which seemed a much more sensible kind of you know, response in a time where everything had ground to a halt. And actually that money was needed. I kind of think they should have done that this year. Now, I think you're right, however, that this really goes into a much wider trajectory in art beyond the pandemic. And I'm all up for plurality of, uh, you know, art making. Art making doesn't have to be sculpture and certainly doesn't have to be sort of pretty pictures. However, it's not the juror's role to make a point. They are sort of, you know, making a point and engaging in, I suppose, a culture war that has been sort of put up by the right and it's a phony culture war and in doing so they're sort of providing further sort of uh, energy to this sort of fury that back and forth between right and left that I don't think is necessary or helpful. I guess part of it from you know my position as a layman is that you'd think that art is about what's beautiful what's what gives you pleasure to look at or to enjoy or to experience so it doesn't have to be two-dimensional but I guess none of these things seem to evoke that traditional sense of beauty or aestheticism. Katie, would you agree with that and you know does this art then become something else when it's too much campaigning and too much politics? Well I mean one of the other great big art debates that's come up this year has been this whole controversy around Philip Guston and there's this kind of great quote that Guston has when he has a turning point in his art when he talks about watching you know, all of the appalling things and the violence going on in the world. And he says, what kind of a man am I that watches that kind of thing and feels this fury inside myself? And then I go into my studio to adjust a red to a blue. So I think there are points where people feel that the world has got to a state where they can no longer respond just by going back to contemplate great works of aesthetic, abstract painting or whatever. But I think this also talks to the importance of the visual arts and performing arts in protest. I mean, with things like Extinction Rebellion, the way that they've managed to create something that's spectacular, that it draws attention has been a really big part of their protest. And, you know, we've also seen things like the Artists' Coalition to Repeal the Eighth in Ireland, who've used some really interesting tactics to draw attention, to draw conversation out around big topics at the moment. And I think certainly with Array, that's a big part of what they do. They've been using art and performance as a way to discuss, you know, pro-choice, to discuss various different, like, tricky issues that are going on in Northern Ireland at that point. So they are certainly using aesthetics, but they are maybe using aesthetics to promote a larger social conversation. I do think that there will be moments of great beauty, actually, in a lot of the work these organisations do. You know, if there is a, there's beauty in a club night, there's moments of beauty in a performance um, or a protest. So I do think actually there, there is moments of beauty or there could potentially be. But I, I think what the Turner Prize is so good at doing 
is really making a moment and promoting contemporary art. It's the moment of conversation. It's the moment of national conversation in which everyone has a say. And it might be, it might be to deride it. It might be to mock it. You know, but it's it's the moment where it's in the tabloid newspapers. It's the moment where people talk in the pub about it. During the pandemic, so many artists exactly found themselves in the position of Philip Guston, as Hetty said, you know, where they couldn't really see the point of making a painting or a sculpture or whatever they make a film. They couldn't see the reason to do that. What I would see the Turner Promoters' role, if it had a, a role in promoting anything, is to say, actually, there's a worth of doing that. However bad the world is, however terrible things are happening, there's actually a worth in like people squirreling away and making like strange objects. It, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a beautiful thing for them, but it's also a beautiful thing for you know, the wider public to sort of look at these odd things. Otherwise, it, I'm not promoting art as a form of escapism, but it's also a form of sort of engagement. It's not the, the treadmill of the new cycle, etc. Uh, and I think to have the Turner Prize jury then turn around and sort of say, actually, that stuff you weren't sure about this year, you're right. You're right not to be sure about it. Hetty and Oliver, thanks very much. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the articles that we talked about, you can pick up an issue of The Spectator in order to read them. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher to get 12 weeks of The Spectator for just £12. And we'll also throw in a £20 Amazon voucher. You'll also see in this week's issue a diary from Tristram Hunt on the reopening of the VNA. Paul Wood on what's next in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And an excellent review by Philip Henscher of Francis Wilson's new book, Burning Man, all about the comic life and times of D.H. Lawrence. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.